found on page 1617 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Reading, starting in verse 13. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. God's holy word inspired for us, preserved by God through the ages that it might come to us as his holy word. It is for our good that he gives this word to us, so let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Sometimes you can get a sense of particular sins that collectively we tend to struggle with by looking at the Christian bestsellers list. It's unfortunate, but it's true because oftentimes if there is a a bad teaching contained in one of these books that appeals to our worst traits, then a lot of times that kind of a publication will pick up steam. It will become a bestseller. This has happened in recent years. There's a book called The Circle Maker. And the teaching in this book, which is taken from a story, not in the Bible, but actually in the Talmud, There's a pastor in Washington, D.C. that says, if there's something that you want in this world, what you need to do is employ the power of circles. So you need to walk a circle around something you want or draw a circle around something you want or an imaginary circle around something that you want. And if you pray while making these circles around something you want in this world, in this life, God will give it to you. It's the power of circles and the power of prayer. Obviously, this is a a bad teaching. It's a bad message. But it becomes a bestseller because it appeals to something within us that's part of our sinful and corrupted flesh, our corrupted nature, and it makes us forget our greed, our covetousness, makes us forget about our primary duties to honor God and to live for him. It's all all over the place, the message that God wants you to be rich. It fills pulpits, it fills minds, it fills hearts. People who would follow Jesus in order to get a BMW, a bigger house, 
a bigger barn. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that God does want us to be rich. But not in the way that peddlers of God's word would have us believe. Jesus has been teaching us the importance of an eternal perspective. And in the last passage, he applied it to the idea of fear. Who are you to fear? Fear God or man? You're to fear God because he's the one who holds sway over the life to come. And today, he applies that eternal perspective in the area of wealth, money, riches, greed, covetousness. And the main point of what Jesus is saying is that we are to seek the riches that are found in his salvation. Because of that, all of other things in our lives beneath that are put into right order. An eternal perspective, then, is what we seek as it relates to money and wealth. We are to seek riches that take into account the whole of eternity. Let's do that as we turn to this passage in Luke chapter 12. It begins with a man giving a request to Jesus, and it hits us as a little bit odd. So either this man didn't hear what Jesus had been saying, talking about eternal perspective and the fear of God and not fearing man. Either he didn't hear Jesus or he completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. He wasn't paying attention. And there was someone I heard speaking about this passage, said it as a pastor. It reminds you that not everyone is going to come away with the main point of your sermon that you intend. Perhaps that's what happens here. Out of the blue, this man says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the estate with me. So he wants Jesus to settle this estate dispute. Sometimes it's hard to relate to things in scripture, isn't it? We say, well, that's part of a a different world back then. The world was very different. Here is an instance where we will have no trouble connecting to what's going on here. Sadly, this is something that happens all the time in all kinds of different situations, fighting over inheritances. In Israel, there were provisions in the law, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, Uh, various teachings about what you are to do with an estate. The firstborn son is to receive a double portion, but there is to be some allocation of goods and resources across everyone else. So this man goes to Jesus, and in his going to Jesus, he's showing that he respects Jesus' position of authority. He's saying, I want you to give commentary on my life regarding this situation. People would go to rabbis and to teachers of the law because the Old Testament taught something about inheritances. It taught something about estates. But Jesus responds in a rather stark way, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Why does Jesus respond this way? Well, a couple reasons. The first is that Jesus is laser focused on his mission, right? He has come to seek and to save the lost. He's not going to get caught up in earthly things, And by doing so, he teaches us about the ways that we should prioritize our lives. It doesn't mean that Jesus is saying we should be completely unconcerned with matters down below. Matters here on earth take up a lot of our time, a lot of our mental space, a lot of our resources, and that's fine. But how are we prioritizing things? Jesus says, my kingdom, later on in his life, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he tells this man that he is not going to take heed of his request. He calls him man, which is meant to, in some ways, sound a little bit cold. And Jesus, in the last passage, remember he called his disciples friends. 
that Jesus is a friend to those who come to him seeking mercy and grace and forgiveness, to those who come to him seeking the spiritual riches and treasures that he gives. But he is not a friend to those who come to him who think that he's going to give them an upper hand in this world. He responds to remind us of those priorities. He also responds because being God, he knows and he senses a problem with this man's heart. Even though this man has possibly been wronged, it's very possible that his brother has done him wrong and his brother is cheating him out of his inheritance. Even though that is true, Jesus senses that there is sin in this man's heart. And that's important for us to notice And to remember that even when we are wronged and we feel like we should be filled with righteous anger, particularly in these kinds of cases where someone has cheated us out of money, someone has done us wrong regarding an estate or an inheritance, we can be filled with righteous anger and say that we'll do anything in order to right that wrong. It doesn't excuse what that person has done, but if we are filled with greed, if that is why we are doing it, because we are coveting, because we are filled with greed, it doesn't excuse the sinfulness that we have within us. And that's what's going on with this man. So we should not use situations where we are wronged to feed our coveting, our earthly greed. We are still sinning, even if we have been wronged. It's no wonder that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say, you can't concern yourselves too much with these things, especially amongst believers. You can't be going to court time and time again, because what does that say to a watching world? When the main source of all of your fighting and all of your quarrels is earthly riches. There's a situation I knew of, of two brothers who uh, were caught up in one of these battles, these estate battles, and they went to court over it. And while they were in court, sort of the economic downturn back in 2008, and as a result, this estate was worth millions and millions of dollars. As a result, they basically had to liquidate everything in order to pay the lawyer fees. And they had to sell the home, which they got way less money for than they would today uh, because of the, the situation that they were in at that time. And that's a story that repeats itself again and again. You place that as an idol in your life and it creates problems. It's for these reasons that Jesus turns to everyone and he says in verse 15, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, fight, turn against greed. And so how do we take Jesus' message, his warning to heart here? A couple things to notice. The first thing is this. This warning from Jesus is intended for all people, rich and poor. Think about who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to the brother who has the money in his possession, is he? No. He's talking to the one who currently has nothing. Covetousness, greed can infect the haves and the have-nots. Both wealth and poverty bring temptation. The poor want what they don't have and the rich want more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. We're talking about greed. What are we talking about? Thomas Watson says this, greed is an insatiable desire to get the world. And that's the toxicity of greed. Whatever you have, if you have a greedy or a covetous heart, it will never be enough. And this warning is for everyone. That's the first thing. This warning is for everyone. Secondly, uh, if we take a close look at Jesus' command, his warning, 
It engages us in some kind of action. He says, watch out, be on your guard. In other words, fighting against greed and covetousness is a battle. And we need to take great care in fighting against our greed and our covetousness. Take Jesus at his word. Unless we are vigilant in the fight against coveting, against greed, we will never win. We will never succeed. So, watch out, be on your guard. It is a battle. Third, this. We need to understand what this life is all about. Understand what this life is all about. Jesus says, even in an abundance of goods, your life does not consist in what you have. Whether you have a little, whether you have a lot, that's not what life is about. The thing about possessions is that they always try and possess us. And once they do, we are infected with a covetous heart. Proverbs chapter 23 says this, verse 4, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have wisdom and show restraint. Thinking about that, thinking about all things, what scripture says, the fourth thing I think as we think about Jesus' words here, we need to create a balanced approach to money and wealth that takes into account much of the teaching of scripture. We need a balanced approach. So first about money is this. It is good to save and it's good to be responsible with money. And it's good to save money even for retirement. I think the balanced approach to money and wealth is found in a really nice, concise form in Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9. It says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's good to be responsible and to take a responsible approach to money. Secondly, wealth can be a blessing. Wealth can be a great blessing. It's an opportunity to serve God and to serve others. A lot of the, the work that Christians engage in in the world relies heavily upon those who have been blessed with material wealth. So wealth can obviously be a blessing. But important to keep in mind that wealth can also be very dangerous. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Even though wealth can be a blessing, it's important to understand the dangers of it and how the love of it can possess our hearts. Proverbs 16.16 says this, How much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. What's more important than earthly riches? Understanding, perspective, knowing why we we were created, the purpose for which God put us on this earth. So wealth can be very dangerous. Fourth, wealth is from God. It's a gift from God. And we should always be asking how we can use it to honor God. And the the message of scripture is usually that means sharing with those in need. It's usually what it means regarding wealth. We'll go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 says this. As for the rich in this present age, which again shows us that riches are not just about what is here and now. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not, not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Interesting way to think about riches, being rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly 
life. We need to create a balanced approach to wealth, a balanced approach to riches, so that we fight against greed and covetousness. Those are the ways in which we engage in the battle. So Jesus takes us to this parable then, this parable in the passage, and the parable teaches us this. It teaches us that earthly security is anything but secure. Earthly security is anything but secure. In this parable, there's a a certain rich man, as he is given to us, a certain rich man. Let's call him uh, rich. And he illustrates the teaching of Jesus that life does not consist in our possessions. That's what this parable teaches us. He sees great wealth come into his possessions, but ultimately his wealth is left behind. He cannot take it with him. Proverbs 23, verse 5 The next verse of what I just read in Proverbs 23 says this, When you set your eyes on riches, they are gone, for wealth makes wings and flies away like an eagle. The point of this parable of Jesus is that we are to see ourselves in rich. We are to see ourselves in the wealth and his possessions and the barns that he's going to build. Unless we enter the story ourselves, it's not going to hold meaning for us. So let's look closely at why this man's mindset is so mistaken and so misguided. First, we see that he's completely self-absorbed. He's completely self-absorbed. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, this is a good question, isn't it? When there is an abundance of goods that comes into our lives, it's important to ask, what should we do with it? What should we do with it? But when we read verse 18... What should catch our eyes is how many times we see I and me and my. Verse 18 should strike us as really one of the most self-absorbed verses in all of Scripture. Listen, he says, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This inner dialogue shows us the condition of this man's heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. His treasure is completely in his earthly wealth. And so he thinks of no one else. He thinks of bringing no one into his, his, the consideration of his mind, what he is to do with all that has come into his possession. This is how idolatry tends to work, isn't it? If we look at what the Pharisees, what, why Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees earlier on in this chapter, it's because the love of their status, the love of their recognition has removed the love of God and the love of neighbor from their hearts. What you treasure will always push other things to the side. You cannot serve God and money. This man is serving money. Not only is he completely self-absorbed, he is obsessed with security and control, which is a huge problem with our material wealth and possessions. He acts as though he, he is in control. He acts as though he is the one who is determining all of his tomorrows. James chapter 4 warns against this and says the control that we think we have over our lives is merely an illusion. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Money, material wealth, gives us the dangerous impression that we are gaining control over the things that happen to us. 
That does not mean that we throw caution to the wind. That does not mean that every dollar that we come into possession of, we just spend it because we say, well, control is an illusion, right? That's not how we are to respond. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for our irresponsibility or our sin. But this man's obsession with control and security makes him a slave to wealth. He goes to such great lengths to store up his wealth for himself. He tears down or he plans on tearing down the barns that exist in order to build new ones. All of you come from, many of you come from good Dutch stock. And so you say, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. He should just keep the barns he has and then build a new one in addition to that. But the point, right, is that our love of wealth will push us to do foolish things, ridiculous things. He tears down the barn that he has in order to build a bigger one. It's ridiculous. And that's the point. The love of wealth drives us to do the ridiculous things we do to keep it ours. And it's foolish because we do not know what tomorrow will bring. So our obsession with control will always leave us unsatisfied. Why does our obsession with control leave us unsatisfied? Because at some point, perhaps many points in everyone's life, you will be reminded that you are not in control. That you are not the one who is deciding what is going to happen tomorrow. What you bring into your life for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It will always leave us unsatisfied. The mention of tomorrow is appropriate as we consider this parable. He's got all of his tomorrows planned out, enough crops stored up so that he can enjoy the rest of his life. And so he says this, I will eat, drink, and be merry. But he's forgotten part of the quote, hasn't he? And he's forgotten the most important part of the quote. Now, I will eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is actually what Isaiah twenty-two thirteen says. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And the idea being, of course, if you knew it was your last day on earth, and if you knew that, or if you believed that this life were about pleasure, what you should do is you should be as indulgent as you possibly can for that last life, for that last day of your life. Store up as much pleasure as you can. But this man has planned out the rest of his life for that. He wants the rest of his life to be about these self-indulgent days, eating, drinking, being merry. But the part of the quote that he has forgotten is the part that comes true. Tomorrow we die. In the Jewish calendar, when does the next day begin? Tomorrow begins in the evening. That's when the next day begins. And in the parable, that very night, God comes to him and says, This night your life will be demanded of you. Tomorrow we die comes true. Psalm 14 says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the fool not only says that in his heart, the fool lives that out, doesn't he? He says in his heart, there is no God, and then he lives like there is no God. And that is what the fool, this rich fool in our parable, does says there's no God. He talks to himself quite a bit, doesn't he? Thinking he's the only one who needs to be consulted, thinking he's the one who's deciding what's going to happen in his life. But God was listening to his conversation all the while, wasn't he? God knew what he was saying. God knew what he was thinking. And then, ironically, God says that your life or your soul, you could translate that either way, your life or your soul, 
will be demanded of you. The word for demanded is a word you would use for paying back a loan. A lender comes and he can demand the amount from you, all that you owe. The irony, of course, is that this man has set up his life so that he would owe no one anything. He wants to be his own man. He wants to live the rest of his life owing no one anything. No one can come to him and demand anything. But that's never the case when it comes to God, is it? God, your creator, your king, demands allegiance to him. The soul can never be purchased or paid for with earthly wealth. This life's value is not in stuff or money, for the things that we have cannot satisfy the needs that we have. Why not? Why can't earthly riches satisfy us? Because our needs are shaped by eternity. Our whole selves, mind, body, and soul, are created by the same one who is the only one who can satisfy us. This man speaks to himself or he speaks to his soul. It's the same word that we can translate. And the folly is, as the man looks to, speaks to himself, he says, look all that I have laid up for you, my soul. All that I've given to you, my soul, the, my goods, my crops. But of course, that's not what your soul needs. That's not even what your whole self needs. Earthly riches, earthly wealth, earthly possessions. His mentality is similar to to so much thinking that we see today, right? Store up as much as you can for yourself so at the the end of of your life you can be indulgent and, and have as much as you need and that will be what satisfies you. That will be the land flowing with milk and honey. But that will not satisfy your soul. You need to be rich toward God. And so the, the urgency of what Jesus teaches to us is found in what God says to him. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. And when this life is gone, what becomes of your riches? Whatever happens to them, it won't concern rich. Maybe he'll have distant relatives who come in and fight over it and obsess over it. And they fall into the same trap that he did, having their life be around revolving around money and earthly wealth. There's a lament and a challenge to this kind of thinking in James chapter 5. It says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And James turns to the faithful. He says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What this passage says to us, a very clear, very simple point. If you live like this rich man, you will get misery. If you live neglecting the God who made you, replacing the giver of all, of, good, of all good gifts with the gifts themselves, then in this life you will see the futility of living like a fool. But it's not riches or the seeking of riches that Jesus is rebuking here. 
It's just the kind of riches. Look at the way that Jesus ends the lesson for us this morning. He uses this fascinating phrase saying that we must be rich toward God. In other words, the foolishness of people like rich is that they obsess and they spend their time seeking the wrong riches. So we are to seek riches. All of those desires that we have, the desire for security, the desire to treasure something, the desire to have security and wealth stored up, all of those things are good, but they can get twisted and mangled and earthbound. And what Jesus is saying is all of those desires within you can only be satisfied by the one who made you. If you're going to seek riches, you need to seek the riches that are found in Christ, in salvation. Consider the passage from James that we just read. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What he's saying is sow seeds of righteousness. Think about the desires that you have and orient them to the good and the true and the beautiful. Orient them to your God, your creator, your maker, and be patient to see the return on your investment. Sow seeds of righteousness. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This life is fleeting. Sow seeds of righteousness and seek the riches that come in Christ, the righteousness that comes in and through him, and seeking the glory of God in his life. And that's where it begins. We need to understand the kind of riches that come to God in the gospel. He who was rich became poor so that through his poverty you might be made rich. How can we be rich toward God? We need to be rich in Christ. We must have the gold of Jesus that has been tested in the fire, that has been refined, that is completely pure, that has no dross, that can never fade away. His forgiveness, his righteousness, his life given to us by God's grace. That is how we are rich toward God. Orient all of your desires to that which is eternal, that which will never fade away. This brings earthly contentment. The Apostle Paul spoke about this a lot says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ. Whatever circumstances he faced, plenty and hunger, a lot or a little. See, what Jesus is saying is whether you're rich or you're poor in terms of earthly wealth, that doesn't matter. He's not saying that poverty is a virtue. He's not saying that riches are a virtue. He's saying what is more important than all of that? What's more important in all of that is being rich towards God. So we need earthly contentment. We need transformed desires. Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is enough that the God who made you will never leave you nor forsake you in Christ. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Reformed preacher said this, when can it be said of a man that he is rich toward God? Never until he is rich in grace and rich in faith and rich in good works. Seek those riches, being rich in grace, rich in faith, 
and rich in good works. Never until he has applied to Jesus Christ and bought of him gold tried by the fire. Never until he has a house not made with hands. Or your desires on the house that is not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. Never until he has a name inscribed in the book of life. And is an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Such a man is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His bank never needs to be bailed out perhaps. His inheritance does not fade away. Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. Life, death, things present things to come, and best of all, what he has now is nothing to what he will have hereafter. No matter what God gives to you, you are to seek a greater wealth in having Christ as your true treasure and allowing that mindset to transform your desires, allowing that mindset to transform your relationship with the gold that you have that will one day fade away and be gone forever. Moth and rust destroy, but Christ will be our treasure now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and praise. We thank you for the riches laid up for us in Christ. May we seek those above all things. Be rich in grace and rich in faith and rich in good works. Thank you for the gospel, the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, by which we can be forgiven, by which we are made new, through which we hope and always look to your coming kingdom. May we have that as the treasure of our lives, your glory at the center of who we are. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.